Welcome to Native Talk Arizona, presented by Native Health and 90.7 FM KRDP. Later in the show, Melanie Mariano will tell us about the Youth Development Program at the Phoenix Indian Center. We'll learn about seeding sovereignty with Agnes Woodward, and we'll chat with Liv Barney, Navajo painter and animator. But right now, host Lanasha Puati talks with Chandos Colleen, Director of Federal Relations with Nikui. On the phone with me is Chandos Colleen, Director of Federal Relations for the National Council of Urban Indian Health, also known as Nikui. Welcome to our show, Chandos. Oh, it's good to be here. To get started, what is the National Council for Urban Indian Health? Yeah, so the, the National Council of Urban Indian Health is the national nonprofit organization uh, devoted to the, the support and development of quality, accessible, and culturally competent health and public health services for American Indians and Alaska Natives who live in, in urban areas. We're the, we're the only national organization that advocates on those issues specifically, so specifically for the health of, of uh, American Indians and Alaska Natives living in urban areas. Um, and we do it. We do a number of things. So we provide technical assistance, uh, training, policy support, research, uh, and other services to uh, urban American Indians and Alaskan Natives uh, located throughout the United States. Oh, great! And what do you do at Nakui? It's uh, a great question. <laughs> so I'm I'm the director of federal relations. Uh, I work within our public policy division, uh, which consists of of sort of two sort of work groups, I'd say, um, one of which is our federal relations side and one of which is our congressional relations side. Um, so I, I specifically lead the public policy division's administrative advocacy. Um, we work on, on long-term federal strategy. Uh, and then I also work closely with our congressional relations team to make sure that we're aligned and we're speaking with, with one voice on the issues we're working on. And can you highlight for us what is public policy and why is it important? We do a number of things within our, our public policy division here at, at NICUI. Um, like I said, I, I work on the federal relations side. So we, the work I do focuses primarily on federal agencies um, across the breadth of the federal government that impact uh, American Indians and Alaskan Natives living in urban areas. So you know, primarily we, we interact with Health and Human Services, which houses the Indian Health Service, obviously. Um, and then within the Indian Health Service, there's an Office of Urban Indian Health Programs. But we also uh, do direct our advocacy work at agencies like the VA, um, which does a lot of work, obviously, for, for Native veterans. Uh, other sub-agencies within HHS, like the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, SAMHSA, um, sometimes we'll, we'll interact with the Centers for Medicaid and Medicare Services, CMS, uh, another sub-agency within HHS. Um, and we'll also interact with, obviously, the, the Department of Interior, the Bureau of Indian Affairs, because uh, a lot of their work impacts the health of, of American Indians and Alaskan Natives living in, in urban areas. And then that, that, uh, those activities, again, span a, a broad range of, of actions. So, um, you know, some days we're, we're drafting comments in response to proposed rules that are coming out of the federal government. Uh, other times we're developing policy position papers, white papers, uh, or other advocacy materials. We do um, sort of grassroots organizing, right? So we, we serve 41 urban Indian organizations across the country. 
they, they operate in 22 states, 77 locations in 22 states. So we provide them with public policy support. Uh, if they wanted to respond to a proposed regulation, for example, um, sometimes we'll circulate draft template letters, stuff like that. Um, and like I said, we do some grassroots organizing among those urban Indian organizations to help develop support for uh, priority policy issues, uh, to develop uh, collaborative work groups between urban Indian organizations, tribes, national tribal organizations like the National Congress of American Indians or the National Indian Health Board. So public policy really spans a, a broad range of, of actions that we're taking to, to advocate on behalf of uh, urban American Indians and Alaska Natives. And is voting a part of public policy or does it affect public policy? Yeah, voting is incredibly important, right? It's the way that we as, as citizens in this country make our, our voices heard. And it's in, incredibly important for American Indians and Alaska Natives specifically. There are you know numerous instances across the United States where the Native vote has swayed, literally changed the outcome of elections, right? Uh, if you, you know, I'm sure if you ever talked to Senator Murkowski, she would tell you how much she depended on the Alaska Native vote, for example, uh, to get reelected when she was running a write-in campaign in, uh, in Alaska. Um, so the Native vote can literally change elections. And then, like I said, it's the way that we make our voices uh, as citizens heard in this country. Uh, it's the way we can highlight important um, issues for our representatives uh, and literally, you know, bring them to the table to to uh, change their mind potentially, change public policy uh, priorities. Uh, so just ab absolutely vital. And public policy changes our lives. Why is it important to pay attention to it? Yeah, so public policy, and I should emphasize that when I'm talking about public policy, our, our work at NICUI focuses mostly at the federal level, but public policy really uh, we're talking about initiatives at every level of government from the federal government to state governments to tribal governments to local city county governments right to even you know your your town board of supervisors whatever you you may have so public policy the um, priorities that we're advocating for no matter what level you're working at, can have a direct impact on your life, right? So when we're when we're working at the national level, when we're um, dealing with health and human services, with the Indian Health Service, with the Office of Urban Indian Health Programs, we're talking about uh, services that the United States has promised to American Indian and Alaska Native people, right? Sacred promises through trust, through a trust obligation uh, and treaties to provide healthcare services to American Indians and Alaska Natives. And Congress uh, has, has recognized that that obligation does not end at the reservation borders, right? So it, it, that um, promise to provide healthcare to Native people in the United States exists no matter where they live. We are talking about, uh, a, like I said, a sacred promise, something that affects people fundamentally on, on a, a, a daily level. Um, specifically for the organizations that we work on behalf of, urban Indian organizations, they are uh, chronically underfunded despite serving a, a significant portion of the American Indian and Alaska Native population in the United States, uh, and despite being an, an equal part of the Indian Health Service's efforts to provide health care 
to Native people in, in the United States. So um, they're chronically underfunded. They are doing phenomenal work to uh, raise the level of, of Native health in this, in this country. So we are um, advocating for them to get dollars to do, uh, you know, basic primary care, to do specialty care, right? Uh, to expand their offerings. Uh, a lot of them, uh, a lot of the UIOs provide uh, behavioral mental health services. They provide substance abuse treatment options. They provide maternal health, both, both um, perinatal and postnatal, right? So we're talking about literally the, the health of, of mothers and infants. Um, but that, and that's at a national level, right? But these, these issues trickle down. Uh, they, they impact your life at the state level, at the tribal level, at the city level, at the county level, at the, you know, at a village level. Um, so it's really important for people to, to be involved in, in these decisions and these policies at, at every level that they can. And is it important to voice your opinion and vote and why? Yes. Get out and vote. <laughs> Get out and vote in every election that you can. Um, you know, I think there's a there's a tendency right in this country to focus on high level uh, national elections. Right, we, we everybody sits in front of uh, their new service of choice. Right, watching the presidential election results come in. But it's important for you to to make your voice heard at every level that you can. Like I said, there's there's policies that are being made at the local level, at the tribal level, that impact your uh, daily life that you need to get out and make your voice voice heard on. Um, so I, I really encourage people to get out and vote in, in whatever election that they can. Um, again, the, the Native vote in this country has literally changed elections. Um, and, you know, elected officials are paying attention to what American Indian Alaska Native people have to say. Uh, and the way that you can make them pay attention is by voting. And how can someone reach out to you if they have additional questions? Yeah, so you can you can always reach our communications team here at NICUI at uh, communications at NICUI.org. Uh, and that's the best way to direct any questions uh, to our organization as a whole. Um, and obviously, if there's anything specifically for Chandis, uh, it can get it gets directed on to me through that that email address. Well, I would like to thank you, Chandis, for taking time out to talk to us today and providing us with all of this great information. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Coming up, we'll talk with Melanie Mariano. Support for 90.7 FM KRDP comes in part from Native Health, with two locations in Phoenix, 4041 North Central Avenue, Building C, and at 2423 West Dunlap Avenue. Native Health is also located in Mesa at 777 West Southern Avenue, near the corner of Southern and Extension Roads. Native Health provides primary medical, dental, behavioral health, WIC, and wellness services for the urban Native American community. For more information, call 602-279-5262 or visit our webpage at nativehealthphoenix.org. Welcome back to Native Talk Arizona, presented by Native Health and KRDP 90.7 FM. I'm host Lanasha Puati, Melanie Mariano, 
Youth Development Program Manager for the Phoenix Indian Center, is here with us today. Hello, Melanie. It's an honor to have you on our show today. Hello, and thank you so much for having me on. Before we get started, I'd like to ask us to begin telling our listeners a little bit about themselves. Can you tell us where you're from and about your Indigenous heritage? Oh, sure. So my story is a little different. I actually grew up on the East Coast in Connecticut, uh, closer to the Mohegan and Mashantucket Pequot tribes out that way. But my Indigenous roots stem from Washington State, from the Mount St. Helens area, Uh, I am actually Cowlitz Indian from out that way. And before moving down here about a year ago with my spouse to Phoenix, I was living up there and working for my own tribe. Oh, wow. It's a pleasure to have you today, Melanie. Can you tell us about the Phoenix Indian Center and the different programs that are offered? The Phoenix Indian Center is actually the oldest Native American nonprofit here in the uh, U.S., And here in the Phoenix metro area of Maricopa County, we serve tribal members from over 400 different tribes. We have various programs. Um, As you notated, I am the Youth Development Program Manager. So that program is specifically for self-identifying high school-aged American Indian youth. We do not require a CIB for them to be a part of our program. They just have to self-identify as Indigenous, uh, Native American, Pacific Islander, or Alaskan Native. And we are a grant-funded program through the Department of Education. We focus mainly on helping urban Indigenous uh, our urban Indigenous uh, youth populations um, with the next steps of planning their college and career path. So we, um, we a lot of our programming really focuses on uh, college activity, um, career development, and we also try to keep them immersed in our culture by providing a lot of cultural content and programming as well throughout the year. We also have a youth council, youth council every year that's open to up to 20 uh, Native American youths in that high school age range. And they really are kind of our um, those that kind of help us understand what the urban indigenous youth in their age range um, is really into and focused on as well. They help us throughout the year plan our big um, annual events such as Youth Leadership Day and our um, MMIP Walkathon every year. So that's my program. I also right now oversee the language and culture program here at the Phoenix Indian Center. Um, So that program and youth work very closely hand in hand, as you can imagine. Um, And the uh, language and culture program is currently um, in the middle of offering two different cycles of about 10 classes each of Dene uh, language classes for youths and for um, the older children. So youths being ages zero to eight years of age. And then we have classes going for the nine to 15 year old age ranges right now. Uh, We also do, again, a lot of um, cultural activities within that program, such as ribbon skirt making, uh, ribbon shirt applique classes, Uh, Some of these are actually virtual as well, so anybody um, can join virtually on some of these, and we provide all the materials. 
but one of our biggest focuses has been hand drum making. So we've brought that to light this last year, and that seems to be one of the most popular ones for language and culture. Also here at PIC, we have a prevention program. Uh, that department mainly focuses on um, more of the middle school age range AI youth, uh, focusing on preventing risky behaviors, uh, more of the anti-drugs and alcohol, and then they also focus a lot on suicide prevention. And then they have some wonderful workshops for Indigenous parents. Uh, one is called Parenting in Two Worlds, and that offers a lot of support and guidance for our urban Indigenous parents that are really, you know, struggling and raising their youth here in Maricopa County. And they're trying to keep their youth, you know, again, engaged in um, our cultural heritage, but also living in the environment that we do in the city. And then we also have a workforce development program. So um, this program is more for our 18 uh, and older uh, Indigenous adults who benefit from career assistance services, they do a lot of um, sessions and workshops virtually on resume writing and interviewing skills. And when the youth age out of my program, we actually connect them directly over to workforce development as well. Can you tell us more about the Youth to Work program? What are the eligibility? I know you mentioned that they just have to self-identify, but what is the age range for the youth? So our Youth to Work program began about two years ago, and again, this is part of our programming uh, that focuses more on careers and helping our um, young adults find their career path. And so this is a program that is sort of a two-parter. The Youth to Work program begins with a job readiness training workshop that the youth need to take, and Any youth in high school of that age range, that 14 to 18-year-old age range, uh, so that could be incoming freshmen through outgoing graduating seniors, can take the two-day job readiness training workshop. It's about 10 hours in length over those two days. And um, once they graduate through that program, uh, then those that are either incoming juniors or, again, through their outgoing senior year, those uh, high school juniors and seniors can then move into the paid internship portion of the program. And that's where we help set those youth up with vetted businesses here around Maricopa County. And we actually pay them uh, for their intern hours. So we set them up uh, into the internship. We, you know, walk, walk with them every step of the way. We also set the businesses up for success uh, with programming specifically geared towards what they need to know. And then this is a program that runs for, uh, the internships run for about three weeks in uh, totality. But if a youth and one of the employers uh, wish to continue and the internships are going really well, we have funding in my program to keep that going for for a certain amount of time. And what is the process for registration if youth are interested in joining this program or internship? So our registration is currently closed right now uh, for the current session, but we run this program twice a year. So this will be happening again in the fall. We usually start it up again around October, usually around fall break for most of the high schools. 
And some of these sessions, being that we're in school at that point, are on weekends as well. And then the uh, winter internships will be over the the holiday break time, usually about, um, you know, those weeks that they are on uh, school break. And overall, how many youth can you say have completed this program? Well, um, I would say there's been about 200 easily that have come through the program and um, and then m- many of them have moved on into internships. So our goal is to really raise those numbers, help more of our Indigenous youth kind of get that foot in the door, that first job experience. And hopefully while they're doing that network to make other connections um, to really, you know, Uh, gain that experience and get their foot in the door into a position that they'd like to have. Oh, yes, definitely. And I know you've probably worked with many youth um, over your time. Do you have any favorite success stories you would like to share with us? So actually, one of our employees right now, her name is Candice. Uh, she's she's actually our um, she wears many hats, really, but she her job title is Civic Engagement Coordinator. And she also uh, does a lot of social media work for us with our media team here. She actually started this time last year as one of our interns here. And she was doing such a good job here at Phoenix Indian Center, just working for us part-time while she was still in college, that um, about four months into her internship, we offered her a full-time job. And so she worked it around her schedule um, with college, and she just graduated college in May, and now she works here full-time with us. Oh, wow, that is awesome. What tips do you have for the youth entering the job market? I would say, first and foremost, to be open to the entire experience. A lot of times, as we all know, I'm sure we've all been there at some point, right? We've had an entry-level job or an internship that might not, you know, have all the tasks, um, like all the tasks that we're assigned with off off the bat. Um, So I'd say be open to the experience, but really soak up as much knowledge as you can during the work experience from those who are excelling in that field. And then just make connections, because really, you never know where those might lead to in the future. Oh, yes, definitely. Thank you for sharing that. And Melanie, how can someone learn more about the Youth to Work program? And how can someone contact you if they have further questions? So the best way to find out what uh, is going on here, not just in my program, but um, on every aspect, every programming of Phoenix Indian Center is to check out our website, which is uh, phxindcenter.org. We also have a Facebook page for Phoenix Indian Center, so all of our activities and events are posted there. And then uh, my program, actually for the youth, has an Instagram page and a TikTok as well. So you can look us up that way, and if you'd like to contact me directly, um, anybody can call uh, the center directly, uh, 602-264-6768. I'm at extension 116, and my email is m-m-a-r-i-a-n-o at p-h-x-i-n-d center.org. 
Well, I would like to thank you, Melanie, for taking time out to talk to us today to share all of the great work you are doing at the Phoenix Indian Center. Thank you so much. We really appreciate you having uh, having me on today and allowing me to share a little bit about what's going on here. Up next, we'll learn about seeding sovereignty with Agnes Woodward, and we'll chat with Navajo artist Liv Barney. Support for 90.7 FM KRDP comes in part from Native Health, with two locations in Phoenix, 4041 North Central Avenue, Building C, and at 2423 West Dunlap Avenue. Native Health is also located in Mesa at 777 West Southern Avenue, near the corner of Southern and Extension Roads. COVID vaccinations, boosters, and testings are available at all locations for anyone over the age of five. For more information, call 602-279-5262 or visit our webpage at nativehealthphoenix.org. Welcome back to Native Talk Arizona, presented by Native Health and KRDP 90.7 FM. I'm host Lanasha Pwadi. Agnes Woodward is the MMIP Project Director with Seeding Sovereignty. Welcome to our show, Agnes. Thank you for having me. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, my name is Agnes Woodward. I'm Nehiao from Treaty 4 Territory and a member of Kawakatoos First Nations that is in Saskatchewan, Canada. I currently reside in Newtown, North Dakota on Fort Berthold Reservation. This is home to the Mandan, Hidatsa, and Arikara people. I work as the project director for the MMIP Storytelling Initiative with Seeding Sovereignty. And I'm just real honored to be here today. Thank you for sharing that. And it's a pleasure to have you today. And to get started, can you share with us what is Seeding Sovereignty? Seeding Sovereignty is a multi-lens collective that works to radicalize and disrupt colonized spaces through land, body, and food sovereignty, community building, and cultural preservation. And can you tell us more about the different programs you offer? Yes, at Seeding Sovereignty, we have a few amazing programs. There's my program, the MMIT Storytelling Initiative. We have the Gagichi Highway Win Project, which is run by S.A. Lawrence Welch. And Gagichi Highway Win, um, it aims to create strong bonds in Indigenous communities by continuing the healing process of those affected by the residential school system, boarding school, 60 scoop, foster care, and just forest removal. Um, SA also, through the Gagicha Highway Win program, does a 12-week program with guests called Mama Wapwak. And the goal of that is to build community um, for those who have been affected by assimilation tactics. SA Lawrence also runs the Lester House Stories, which is a series of stories that were actually shared by my father, Lester House. He is 78 years old. He's a victim of residential schools. And, you know, there's a belief at Seeding Sovereignty that 
there's a lot of healing when we feel like we're less alone, when we feel heard. And so offering the platform to those who can share their experiences, not just for education, but for others who have also been through um, the things that my father talked about um, as a child in residential school. We also have Ancestral Acres Farm and Garden, which is run by our amazing team member, Mayam. And Mayam does various community things like plant sharing, seed sharing, um, just really aims to help feed community members. And that is in New Mexico. We have Medicine Wheels, which is a program that brings together BIPOC and LGBTQIA2S+, to share joy and reconnect to the land through like roller skating and skateboarding. And more recently, we have another Medicine Wheels program that was started for Indigenous youth here in the community that I live in, in Newtown on Fort Berthold Reservation. And that is run by Tiana Dubois. Oh, wow, that is great. You guys really do have a lot of great programs out there for the community. And um, talking more into your program, the MMIP, a storytelling initiative, can you tell us more about what it is and how you got interested in this program? Yeah, so the MMIP storytelling project features families of missing and murdered Indigenous people. And we try to aim to record at least two stories a month and it's done in a safe space on you know an online platform and families are invited to share their stories of their loved ones and this helps not only with the awareness aspect but also with the healing aspect for the families it's been really important to me to make sure that this process was not done in a way that feels heavy or extractive for the families who share their stories because many of the stories revolve around some pretty disturbing acts of violence, you know, and it takes a lot of courage to share those stories and share those truths. We also have a portion of the program that seeks to offer tangible care to families who are searching for their loved ones or for for families who just need help organizing um, gatherings or just attending gatherings that, you know, are like awareness gatherings or just anything like ceremonies even that help with their healing. We just want to support families in those areas. And so to do that, we raise money for these efforts on global giving and everything that we raise goes back to, to families. And we've been able to help, you know, with several searches this year, but also with simple things like, there was a family that wanted to attend an event in Seattle. We were able to help, you know, with gas money for that. There was a, a mother who wanted to make hand make blankets um, for a memorial event in honor of her daughter that was murdered. And so we were able to help get the materials for things like that. And so just offering that tangible care, you know, those small acts really do make a difference in someone's life. But I was brought into this position because I was already doing this type of advocacy work on my own. I'm also a family member. I have an aunt that was murdered. And my family's been a part of this movement since the beginning. And so through everything that I've learned through the matriarchs of my family, I really feel a great need to do what I can to protect families of missing and murdered Indigenous people from harm, from exploitation. And I just try to lead this program with a family's first perspective 
so that the focus of the work, the focus of the awareness um, and all actions taken is based on the needs of the families. Because it has been the parents of MMIP, the children, the siblings, and just the relatives. They're the ones that are left to carry these stories and carry the pain and the grief and all the things that come along with, you know, having your loved one taken in such an unjust way. And so making sure that their needs, their feelings, and their voices are centered is really important to me. Oh, wow. Thank you for sharing that, Agnes. And has it been hard or difficult to find families to share their stories? Because I know it probably is hard for them to return back into those um, traumas and all those other different feelings that they must have felt. It does, like, for myself, get hard um, for myself to build up the courage to ask or invite family members because that is asking a lot, you know. But what I find through the storytelling um, sessions is that balancing out the stories by asking questions that make them feel good, like tell us about your favorite memory or what was your favorite thing that your loved one did, you know, and sometimes they share stories that make them laugh, that um, just bring joy. And so remembering to feel good amidst the the traumatic part of the storytelling is, is really important. And I think that gives a, a good balance to the way the storytelling is done. Oh, yes, definitely. And as you mentioned, it, it also provides them healing as well. Um, Agnes, mm-hmm. are, are these interviews local or are they nationwide? They are in Canada and the United States. So it's done online. So family members can join really from wherever they are, whether it's Ontario or British Columbia. I've had, you know, Washington, just all over the U.S. And um, how has seeding sovereignty been educating the public and how is it supporting the community? So seeding sovereignty um, through our website and our social media, if you follow us on Instagram, um, every day we have you know, posts going out about our various programs, things going on, um, you know, with like climate justice, a lot of education around those issues. Also, on Mondays is when I post for MMIP, whether it's awareness, whether it's um, sharing like the story of a loved one that could use some some support, but mainly through our, our social media. And can you tell us, um, do you have any upcoming events or programming plans? I do have some some plans that I want to put into action this year, talking with family members, because along with the storytelling aspect, I also sometimes will just hop on, you know, like a virtual meeting or a phone call with a family member just as a support person. And I just see that there is a greater need for spaces that are specific for families. Um, And one thing that I've learned through my family is that when family members are in a room full of other family members, it's like you don't have to explain and give the backstory of everything that you've been through, that, that complete instant understanding of being with people that know what you've been through is there's healing in that. There's a feeling of not feeling so isolated and alone And so creating those kinds of spaces for families is really important to me. And even though we're still in a pandemic, you know, 
we can do that virtually as we've seen with so many uh you know virtual gatherings the last couple of years so i do plan to to create some sort of support group specific for uh families of missing and murdered indigenous people but i'm also a ribbon skirt maker and my mmiwg 2s plus design that i made in honor of my family is pretty well known across Turtle Island. I've made close to 400 of those for family members and advocates across the U.S. and Canada. Um, but also the skirt that I made for Deb Holland um, is pretty well known. So I'm going to be starting a red ribbon skirt class for families that would like to take part. I'm going to talk about the ways that ribbon skirts have been used as a, a tool of empowerment for, for Indigenous people, not only through the art of making and creating because that offers healing, but also wearing one and just feeling empowered as an Indigenous person. For those who are reconnecting after, you know, all the effects of the assimilation policies. And um, working with different families, do you have a favorite story or about what you have done at Seeding Sovereignty? Everyone knows May 5th is the National Day of Awareness for MMIWG. And, you know, for years around May 5th, when I would post all the ways that people can support and, you know, show solidarity, I would also include, like, how can we center families on this day as well? And so I would always add to my list of ways that people can support um, and show solidarity is to see if there's a family of a missing and murdered Indigenous person in your community and maybe drop off a care kit. Just a way to acknowledge that person because days of awareness can be really heavy for some families and some families don't want to participate. You know, and I always say that they almost, it's like they want to shut their blinds and close the world out because it reminds them of that loss. It reminds them of that pain. And some some of that trauma is just too much for families and that's understandable you know but I always believe that even in those difficult moments they still deserve to be acknowledged and comforted in some way and so for May 5th this year we put together 200 care kits to send to families of missing and murdered Indigenous people across Canada and the United States and so it was a huge effort And I think my favorite thing was seeing the reaction of families um, when I brought a care kit to their doorstep or seeing um, the messages that and emails that I would receive when a family member would get a care kit, Um, the tears, the gratitude, and the reminder that they are thought of on those days when they're often not included, you know, was really important to me because seeing that just let me know that the work that we're doing is impactful. And I've always been taught, again, by my mother, that it's not about who you work for, but who you serve that matters. And through this program, I serve the families of missing and murdered Indigenous people. Thank you for sharing that, Agnes. And where can people go for more information? More information can be found on our website, seedingsovereignty.org, or you can, again, follow us on social media, on Facebook and Instagram. We share a lot of what we're doing, upcoming events, how to join. For MMIP work specifically, I can be reached at agnes at seedingsovereignty.org. That's my email. And for any family members that want to be a part of the storytelling project, there's a form on our website seedingsovereignty.org that can be filled out and I will contact family members interested that way. 
Well, we'd like to thank you, Agnes, for taking time out to talk to us today. Thank you for having me. Welcome back to Native Talk Arizona, presented by Native Health and KRDP 90.7 FM. I'm host Lanasha Puadi. Liv Barney is a Navajo artist whose focus is in painting as well as animation. Welcome to our show, Liv. It's an honor to have you on our show today. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm really excited to talk to you guys. And before we get started, please, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, your journey as an artist, and can you tell us where you're from and about your Indigenous heritage? So, um, like you said, I am Navajo. Uh, My family comes from the Twin Lakes area, the Chapter House area in New Mexico, not that far from Gallup. Um, But I mainly grew up in Ohio, where my mom's side of the family is from. And then as far as my journey as an artist, uh, I really, I kind of had the typical answer that you know, I started art when I was really young, you know, just drawing with crayons and stuff and ripping up pieces of paper and trying to make dinosaur shapes out of them. Um, but then I really started seriously uh, pursuing art, probably starting in high school, because I had an idea that I wanted to pursue something creative. And yeah, I just started seriously thinking about it um, and just taking classes. And then if any opportunities came up, I'd try and submit and see if I could get in. But yeah, that's kind of how I started in the arts. Oh, wow. That is awesome. And can you tell us about some of your projects, such as the Uncontained Project and the label for Land Grants Brewing Company and any other favorite project of yours? So Uncontained uh, Mural Project is a project in Phoenix, Arizona. Um, and I believe this is its second year. But um, yeah, it's where it's a mural project where they have a different indigenous artist create a mural uh, every season. So I was the artist selected for the summer this year. Um, and how I found out about it was I was just following a Cahokia and Roosevelt Row, these different like arts organizations in, the, in town. And I just saw them put up a posting and I was like, oh, I, I want to try that. Because I've done a couple murals before, but I was like, I really wanted to get involved in the Phoenix scene. So I just submitted an idea based on a smaller painting I had done. Um, And the original painting was probably like one foot by two foot. And then the final mural for this project for Uncontained ended up being probably, I think, 10 times its size. So it was 20 feet by almost eight feet tall. Um, Yeah. And that's for that project. That's how it kind of got started. So it was based on a smaller thing I did. And I just thought, oh, this is going to be, this would be really cool looking if I made it really large. And they also asked for a proposal image when I was submitting. So I was like, oh, I could do this and see if they like it. Um, Yeah, and then as far as uh, land-grant brewing, I think you asked about. So this is back when I lived in Ohio, because as I mentioned before, I grew up here as well. Um, The land-grant is a local brewing company in central Ohio. And I got reached out to um, by one of the heads of the Franklinton Arts District. And he asked if I wanted to, you know, create a label for this uh, project they have where they combine, like, the music scene in Central Ohio and they combine it with visual artists as well. 
and you kind of just pair and the visual art doesn't have to match up to, you know, the music artist, but I just happened to get lucky in that I got a sort of country twangy band uh, called Mary Steele. So I just matched that music and then also, you know, my love and style of painting, which is like mainly connected to the Southwest. So I just kind of combined these different aspects of me and then also the music I was listening to. And yeah, and that's what the can label was for. So it's just like combining the different art scenes in central Ohio. Um, And it's just something that I really appreciate about that state is they really try to collect uh, connect all the different people and you know make it more of a community aspect oh wow and must be really yeah. rewarding to see your work out there as well yeah it is it's like really wild when you see it like published or printed and like you know mainstream sort of stuff it's really cool and then to see it on like band posters and things oh, so yeah yes. it's very i'm very grateful <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah definitely and how does your indigenous background influence your artwork yeah, so it's a uh, and mainly a lot of my artwork, um, and it just depends on like what I feel like painting. Sometimes um, you can see I do like simplified versions of like Navajo textiles and weavings, like different blankets. So some designs you kind of see, but in more simple version, because a lot of my art nowadays is more um, gestural or graphic, like meaning it has like bold lines instead of trying to do realism. Um, but yeah, I just try to incorporate things I see out in the Southwest and where that part of my family's from, whether it be chili ristras or the hats and the jewelry. Um, and then also sometimes it's just maybe the Southwest and its scenery in general, whether it's the plants. That's a common thing I also do is I frame a lot of my paintings in desert plants, whether it's prickly pear or saguaro or yucca. I just like to incorporate the different things I love about the area. And I also... Um, affects my uh, color usage too like my color choices I really am big into vibrant colors so sometimes I might start with like a beige or taupe background but then I put pops of turquoise and bright red on it Um, and I've even been experimenting a lot with like gold paint so using that as like a background so it's kind of just adds a different flair to it Oh, wow, that is awesome. So you can really spice it up uh, by doing any kind of background like you mentioned. Yeah, I really love the metallic look. It really gives it a different feel and like vibrancy in another way. But yeah, I love it. (laughs) Can you tell us, Liv, how has your art evolved over the years? Yeah, my art has definitely changed my style. Um, So I've always kind of done drawing and painting. So the medium really hasn't changed too much. I do like to experiment in different mediums, but this, what I've been doing mainly hasn't really changed too much. But as far as the style of it, yeah, it has changed a lot. I really started, um, I started with realism actually in high school. Um, as I mentioned, when I was starting to get serious about art, I really was like focused on like almost photorealism, like making stuff look very realistic, uh, black and white, like graphite drawings. Um, and now um, if you go into my Instagram or you see me painting, uh, it's much more of a graphic style. It's bold lines, um, senses of movement, bright colors. So it really has taken um, quite a turn. And I think it just happened because when I was in college, I wanted to find a way of drawing faster. And I was just doing these um, foot drawings in like a wedge Sharpie. So it like would create these movements of thin lines going to thick lines. And I just found that I really liked that. And I could create a lot quicker than when I was doing realism. 
And that's kind of how it, the style changed. And then I just incorporated colors from then on out. Um, yeah, and that's kind of how my art has evolved. Oh, wow, that is awesome. And do you have any favorite pieces? Yeah, I'd have to say my favorite pieces are, two of them are actually the ones you've mentioned so far, is the Uncontained Project. Really just seeing, because that's probably the largest mural I've done so far. And I'm looking forward to doing more, having other opportunities like that. And then the Land Grant uh, Brewing Label, I also love that. But one I haven't talked about is I created, I was part of a group show. And for this part, it was called uh, Art Unbound. And this was back in Ohio. And what it was about is like we would take parts of books and then create art from that. So I would take different like literature and parts of books and like wheat paste them almost onto a canvas and uh, painted over on top of that. But it was transparent enough that you could also see the wording of the books through the paint. So I'd have to say that was probably one of my other favorite pieces because it's just a different take on like how you can incorporate different items or mediums or parts of everyday life into art. So that'd probably be my other favorite that I wasn't talking about before. And Liv, how can someone learn more about your art and how can they contact you? Yeah, uh, how they learn more about my art. Um, as I've mentioned before, I have an Instagram. It's public. It has all my art on it. Um, and it's Artist Liv Barney. So this is uh, artist, my name, and uh, no spaces in between. Um, yeah, that's probably like the best way to contact me and also like to see what I'm up to and what I'm creating like in real time as well. That is awesome. I would like to thank you, Liv, for taking time out to talk to us today. And we'll definitely check out your mural, your uncontained project here in Phoenix. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to Native Talk Arizona, presented by Native Health and 90.7 FM KRDP. Our executive producer is Susan Levy. Sound engineer is Javier Quiroga. And our host is Lanasha Puadi. We hope you will tune in again next week. If you have any questions, please reach us at nativetalkaz at listen2krdp.com.